0: Welcome to Divinely Modern, a progressive Christian podcast for approaching faith with critical thinking, liberating from toxic religion, embracing doubt, and discovering a loving God. Divinely Modern offers support and conversations for exploring faith in the modern world and finding divinity all around us. Although some conversations may relate to religion overall, this podcast specifically touches on the journey of deconstructing conservative Christianity. I'm Haley the Scientist, a physics researcher, feminist, and someone who loves God and loves caring for God's creation. To learn more about my platform and my story, check out my website and blog at HaleyTheScientist.com. Haley spelled H-A-L-E-Y. Now let's explore what it means to be divinely modern. Hello and welcome back to divinely modern. I am so excited for this episode. It's coming out a little later than expected. My apologies. As many of you know, I'm a military spouse and I recently moved from the Bible Belt out to the West Coast. We are set to move again. And we don't know where to yet, but we should be finding out very soon. So I'll be sure to update you all on that journey. So with that and some personal travels, I am just not getting back to things, but I am so excited to share this conversation with you. I have been having some Absolutely wonderful conversations with wonderful people about new ways, or perhaps very old ways, to approach faith. And today we are looking at scapegoating, consent, free will, and the story of the crucifixion. This episode explores everything from Disney's Encanto to desire and imitation, an open future a God who experiences time and the life and death of Jesus. Whether you are deconstructing the traditional theology of penal substitutionary atonement, or perhaps simply curious about what a theology of consent means or looks like, welcome to my conversation with Jonathan Foster about his book, The Theology of Consent, Mimetic Theory, in an open and relational universe. Hello, everyone. Today we have Jonathan Foster talking about his book, Theology of Consent. So Jonathan, how would you like to introduce yourself and your platform?
1: (laughs) Thank you, Haley. It's great to be with you. Uh, you're you're obviously just a little bit. I've got to interact with you. You are well prepared, and uh, oh, thank you. You seem to be doing a really good job at this, so I appreciate it. Um, and it's it's fun to be with you. So yeah, my name's Jonathan. Uh, I'd like to introduce myself as just a guy who has a lot of questions. I don't write because I have answers. I write because I have questions, and it's hilarious because I keep coming up with good answers. But the best answer keep leading to more questions. Mm-hmm. I just keep going, whether it's podcasting or writing or speaking, it kind of never stops, but um, it's kind of fun too. And I think part of it is just the search of it. So that's what I do. I do a few other things. I've started some nonprofits. I have been a church planning pastor in the past, though currently I'm not doing that in this season of my life. And you can find out about me at jonathanfosteronline.com.
0: Mm-hmm. I had a quick fun side question to ask you mm-hmm. because at the beginning of all of your chapters there are cute little cartoons and i had to ask if <laughs> you drew them are you a cartoonist uh
1: i did draw them though um you know we need to qualify the word draw there because <laughs> i'm not very good and so what i wind up I, I have these ideas that i think are hilarious um my my wife doesn't think they're so funny but um <laughs> i think they're fun and then i start to draw them and i'm like crap i can't draw very well and so then i wind up I'll like print something out and I'll trace over it and I'll find some clip art and put it on the top and photoshop it. So, mm-hmm. yes, they are my creations. So, thank you. Most most podcast interviews, people don't even bring those up. So, I'm already uh,
0: through. Yeah. I thought it was really fun. My favorite <laughs> one, there was like a hilarious, very dramatic drawing of like God the Father coming down and being like, "On now I create time." oh wait, but now requires time. It just was a whole funny thing about (laughs) the confusion of creating time. And I just thought that was great.
1: (laughs) Good. Well, I appreciate that. That's good. We should stop the podcast right now because it's not going to (laughs) get any better than that.
0: (laughs) Well, we actually have some great topics to dive into. So your book combines two ideas. The first is memetic theory. And the second is open and relational theology. So let's talk about that first one. What is mimetic theory?
1: Sure. Yes, mimetic theory comes from a French intellectual, French American intellectual by the name of René Girard, who passed away just a few years ago. Incredibly important thinker and writer from the 20th century, um, whose work has kind of spilled over into a bunch of different disciplines and uh, not the least of which is theology. And that's how I kind of landed on them. So mimetic theory comes from him. Um, it's pretty deep. So let me just, I can get deep and involved. Maybe I'll just hit the quick highlights and then mm-hmm. we can unpack any of them if you want. And when I say the highlights, this is my interpretation. Um, it's kind of funny because the book is, it's my dissertation and you know it's kind of like a normal-sized book, maybe 250 pages, and but I'm trying to, I'm trying to break down these two huge concepts, and mm-hmm. so there's there's just no way. But this is my take, and um, what I what I normally do when I talk about mimetic theory is I say it it has to do with desire that leads to imitation that then leads to conflict which then results in the remedy of the conflict, which is what Girard is probably most well-known for, which is scapegoating. And then the last piece is the ritualization of the scapegoating. So it's desire, imitation, conflict, scapegoating. And all of that plays out against the backdrop of what's going on with us humans, which is a real intense awareness, though sometimes it's hidden because we're talking about psycho-spiritual desire stuff, but nevertheless, it's still very much present in our lives, this intense awareness of our own lack and of our own kind of insecurities and shortcomings. And so it, it starts to breed all this, this kind of dysfunctional mechanism that he uh, winds up calling mimetic theory. And that's a lot of stuff in a short amount of time, but I, we can unpack any of those if you want. So
0: Absolutely. I am most interested in the topic of scapegoating. It's probably also the term that most people are familiar with, but we're going to get a little bit deeper into the topic here. So what is scapegoating?
1: So scapegoating is, it's more than just blaming, though that is certainly always involved. It is an, it's a next step where we're trying to offload the culpability that we have for problems and to project them, offload them onto the backs of others. So that which allows us then kind of justifies our treatment of them. So then we punish them, we kill them, we crucify them, we lynch them. The list is endless of the things that we do and the ways that we have scapegoated. And um, we do all of this because uh, we're trying to deal with our own tension and our own violence. I'm speaking from a from a Girardian angle here, in case people just wonder, am I just making this up? But <laughs> his desire that leads to imitation that creates conflict, it's, it's all about not being able to accept the reality of, of the fact that we, human beings just have us. Part of what it means to be human is to have this insecurity and this kind of anxious um, energy about us. And so it, it drives this whole mechanism to scapegoating and we do it in order to to try to distance ourselves from our own problems, um, what happens is, um, you know, we might feel better because scapegoating does kind of work, but it's always at the expense of someone else.
0: Mm -hmm. You give quite a few examples of the scapegoating process in your book. Uh, Like a biblical example would be, Adam blaming Eve and Eve blaming the snake, saying, "Oh, wasn't me. It's they're the one who's the problem." Mm-hmm. Um, a historical example was the Salem witch trials, and such a clear example again of a community saying, "We're going to kind of ignore the real problems we're dealing with and just say it's those people and blaming them." Um, I th- I just have to ask though. I'm a big mm-hmm. Disney fan, and I have to I have to ask. Would Disney's Encanto be an example of scapegoating where everyone in the family has all these problems, but instead of actually addressing their problems, they all just say, it's Bruno. We're going to reject him. We're going to outcast him from the family. And then once he's gone, we're going to be like, everything's fine now. But obviously it's not.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think very much so. Whether or not the the Disney people were trying to, uh, whether they've been informed by Gerard or not, uh, they're probably tapping into a, a really well-known a way that we process our frustration and our antagonism, and that is to blame someone else. And then it it allows us to go another day without having to look ourselves in the, look at look at ourselves in the mirror. So I'd have to rewatch that movie. I watched it uh, what maybe a year, a couple of years ago now. Um, but yeah, it sounds to me like that that's there's a lot of that going on
0: hmm. I just had to ask that one. No, that's I'm just glad. Too fun to me.
1: <laughs> once you start to see the scapegoat and the scapegoating mm-hmm. mechanism, it's really hard not to, it's really hard to unsee it and you start to find it in a lot of places.
0: I believe it. I really do. Cause once you start thinking about it, I was like, Oh, this, and then this, this book I read and then that novel, it's just everywhere. Cause it's just mm-hmm. a reflection of our human nature. Mm-hmm. So, Before we go too far into mimetic theory, uh, let's talk about the other idea that you address in your book, which is open and relational theology. Now, some of our listeners might recognize this term because a few episodes ago, I was talking with Dr. Thomas J. Ord, who you actually happen to know. (laughs) Yeah. So we talked... um, a bit ago about how God cannot prevent evil in the world. And he was talking about it through the lens of open and relational theology. But for any listeners who missed that episode, or if it's been a little bit, could you recap those ideas for us?
1: Definitely. Well, Tom is the, uh, he's the resident guru. So he's the (laughs) one that they'll want to reference ultimately. But yeah, open and relational um, is this idea that, and I usually start with the relational part because it helps unpack the open piece mm-hmm. um it's so it's first of all this idea that everything is in relationship that that is the reality of the cosmos so we don't live in a substance materialistic or yeah material based substance based separate um cosmos but rather we live in a cosmos that is entangled and interconnected in so many different ways and um a lot of the story of science in the twentieth century was them them coming to that discovery, and then the rest of us trying to realize and um, and live in the implications of that. And I think we're still we're still doing that. So whether we're talking about quantum physics, was which is all about enmeshment and entanglement, mm-hmm. but all the way up to the large things like the way gravity interacts with. Uh, the the macro and the physics of the planets and those kinds of things, like everything is fluid.
0: Mm-hmm. What,
1: what open and relational theology does is that uh, this is true even of the divine. It's not as if the divine is separate from uh, creation, but that he or she or it is uh, inextricably intertwined with all that's going on. And it's really beautiful uh, for those who care about such things It helps me explain biblically why some of the writers might say that God grieves or laments or rejoices or dances Mm -hmm. or negotiates or hears or responds. I mean, there's there's just a bunch of those kinds of words going on in the scripture. What are those? Are those verbs? Yeah, something Mm -hmm. like
0: that. They're very active. Like you can imagine somebody doing this, like dancing and singing or grieving. It's a very... Um, very strong words that would be difficult to use with just this cosmic spiritual distant entity
1: (laughs) right this which is kind of what we've inherited in the west this separate capital o omnipotent um, you know outside of space and time and can kind of do whatever he wants top down orders Mm -hmm. the world Um, so so yeah the idea is it's a relational cosmos and that has implications for how we then process time. Because if the divine is in relationship with us, and if if the divine really does interact with us, it presupposes a, a sequence of time, a linear, like for example, with some of those action verbs we talked about a little bit ago, if God is hearing our prayer, like we pray, God hears, God responds, that all happens in a somewhat linear fashion. So that God is, um, what open and relational theology says is that God is wrapped up in time, just like we are. He's not outside, but is within us. And it's a really integral part. It's what brings um, a lot of open and relational theology. It's, it's the robustness of it and the richness comes out of that. And so the future has not yet been determined. It's not a blueprint universe. Mm-hmm. It's a universe where God and us and all of creation are acting and interacting, and we're coming up with new stuff moment by moment. And the future is just, it's an unknown entity. So God doesn't even know exactly how it's going to turn out. Now, I happen to think, and different open and relational thinkers process it in different ways. I happen to think God um, probably has a pretty good idea about how certain things are going to go, especially some things where you know the patterns have, have kind of been set but um, I don't think it makes sense for me any longer to think that he already knows exactly every single decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems mm-hmm. seems to be too much. So that is kind of it in a nutshell. That's open and relational thinking. It's about the relationality of the cosmos, and then how the future has not yet been determined. Um, so, so who knows what's going to happen in, in the future. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Open and relational theology is one of the best things I feel like I've ever discovered. Uh, I grew up very, very Calvinist. So I very strongly believe that God controlled everything. Mm. Everything. And th- I could have an entire episode and probably should at some point about the harms of that way of thinking that God is always in control of literally everything. And when I stepped away from that and found Um, alternatives like open relational theology what i found is this embracing of free will Mm -hmm. and that is so important to me in for so so many reasons um particularly for us to be responsible for our actions because to me, that only makes sense if we are free, but I could go on a whole tangent there. So the point is that a major aspect of open and relational theology is the concepts of free will and consent. And in fact, these are such important ideas that one of them is in the title of your book. Mm-hmm. So how do you define free will and consent and how do these concepts impact our theology?
1: Yeah, Really good point, because these are at the heart of open and relational theology. And I think at the heart of um, of what I might consider healthy theology, mm-hmm. Emp- empowering theology, not a theology that, or a thinking that makes us codependent. You know, it's funny. I think I may even say in the book, if I don't, I say somewhere else. Um, it's interesting how if if our kids grow up, you know, like if you know of a family and the, and the child grows up and they live with their parents forever and ever and ever, um, which happens more now than it maybe did mm-hmm. uh, when I was younger. But we might say, not always, but some people might say, oh, well, you know, that person is codependent upon their parents or they can't make a decision, even if they're not living with them. Maybe they can't make a decision without their parents' input. After a while, we would say there's something not quite healthy about that. Um, it's interesting if you superimpose that same kind of thinking over our relationship with the divine. I think the same thing kind of makes sense that um, I don't think God n- needs us to be the little robots and to be codependent upon her for every single little thing. Uh, I, think, I think it's actually much more um, again, entangled than all of that. And so this kind of thinking, and also mimetic theories helped me too, though, Rene Girard, that that wasn't necessarily his uh, primary reason for uh, coming up with mimetic theory. But both these ideas together have helped me continue to develop what I would think are healthier ways to view the human being and to view myself. And it has to do with, yes, agency and autonomy and free will and consent. And so in the same way that as my kids have grown up, I have wanted to just help them as, be- as much as I can but ultimately let them make all the decisions that they want to make. I think that that's true. If that's true of a earthly, an average earthly parent, why wouldn't that be true of our heavenly parent? Right? Mm-hmm. who So much wants to see us, you know, make choices and flourish. And God, I just don't think God needs to control um, and has to push his or her will upon us. So I don't know for sure but by faith I think that the best thing I can say about God is that God is love. And if God is love then the fundamental characteristic of love is consent. That is that God consents to creation and the choices of creation. It's a consensual relationship. I no longer think the divine needs to manipulate, coerce, control, use like um I've I've just gotten better at extracting all those words from my, my uh, Christian vocabulary, rather than saying God, you know, God use me. Like, I just don't, I don't say that anymore. I don't think God, Mm -hmm. I don't like people who use, use me. Why would I like, why would I like a God who uses me?
0: Ah, that is uh, so big right there. (laughs) Exactly.
1: So um, yeah. So consent is a huge piece of the whole thing. And I think a really important word for our culture right now um, but a really important world word for humanity in general.
0: That was so on point. <laughs> I think a lot of people need to hear that answer.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. A
0: lot of a lot of churches could benefit from that.
1: Well, all they gotta do is go buy, buy the book.
0: <laughs> That's it. Right Easy. there. Easy. That's actually how I found you is that in the conversation with Ord. Um, we mentioned something about consent. I was like, yes, theology of consent, that's what we need. And he was like, there's a book about that. <laughs> Aha.
1: Yes, that's good. Well, I'm glad Tom is promoting me. <laughs> Lord knows I need someone to do that.
0: <laughs> so you touched on a lot of different topics in your book, and we could probably spend multiple episodes doing it. So today we're going to focus in on the crucifixion. <clears throat> So I am most interested in seeing how memetic theory and open relational theology impact how we approach the story of Jesus. Before we do that, though, just for a quick recap for context, would you like to describe the quote-unquote conventional interpretation of the crucifixion?
1: Sure. Well, probably the, I mean, there's multiple different Approaches to the crucifixion, which is not something I even knew about, even as a even as a pastor, up until probably ten or twelve years ago. But um, the most common Americanized Christian way to view of the crucifixion is what some people refer to as um, penal substitutionary atonement, uh, which is the idea that Jesus becomes our substitute and becomes a sacrifice for us, so that um, so that God's wrath and anger. Um, has a place to go. I mean, I'm glossing over a whole bunch of stuff, but Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, it fits really well within the scapegoating mechanism that Gerard lays out. And it's the scapegoating mechanism emetic theory was the primary way that for me, I defanged this whole and and decoded this whole um, oppressive uh, penal substitutionary atonement thing for me. And so I got to the point where I realized that for me, and I think for everyone, but for me, um, it's just not a healthy way to to think of my God needing someone to die, anyone to die, let alone His own Son, needing blood to be shed before He could forgive. So I'm rambling a bit, but in terms of the way it's normally um, framed, you know, that's it for most of American Christianity. Not certainly not everyone, but for a large swath of. Uh, of american christianity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and so i guess is the next question so from going from there how do we then deconstruct that
0: yes absolutely describe your interpretation of the crucifixion in light of mimetic theory and open a relational theology
1: yeah so sorry i was already getting ahead of myself wasn't i <laughs> so um right so so the question like a big question Maybe one of the biggest questions that a lot of us Christians ask is, well, well, why did Jesus have to die? And again, for most of my life, it was because, well, uh, sin is really bad and someone's got to atone. Someone's got to pay for this. Um, and God couldn't forgive without bloodshed. And so Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. After I got a better handle on the theory, Um, I realized that what the Hebrew prophets were speaking about and what Jesus was living into was a way to not live under the oppressive nature of the scapegoating mechanism, which is to find someone and to put all of our problems onto the back again and to then kill them. Uh, So Jesus willingly steps in to become the sacrifice. So he becomes a scapegoat not to enforce the scapegoating mechanism, but to decode it, to reveal that God is that God doesn't need this thing, and God God doesn't make Jesus do this. Jesus chooses um, of his own volition. And so, to answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? You know, a few years ago, I was like, oh wait, Jesus. It's a really easy answer that Jesus had to die because we killed him. Like that's it. It's not because God needed to kill him. Um, it's because that's because we've ordered our systems upon scapegoating violence. That's the way culture has been ordered for, uh, well, at least since the move from uh, hunter-gatherer to agrarian about 10,000 years ago, roughly speaking. And so Jesus, of course, just fits right into that. And so that was super helpful for me. And then I was fine. It just gave me just enough intelligence to back up what I was intuiting. And that is that if I have a healthy father, parent, they, they wouldn't need, you know, me to, uh, to necessarily have my bloodshed. Um, open and relational theology speaks less about atonement in some ways, the mimetic theory, in some ways, never gets very far away from the crucifixion at all because it's such a central scapegoating story. And it's such an iconic story. Open and relational, you know, it's harder to find writing that dives into the atonement. Although I do have some colleagues that are going through uh, the same dissertation process with Tom Ord, who are unpacking some of that. I'm really looking forward to reading some of those things. And there's, there's other people who've written about it as well coming up to um, our time. But basically, what the two concepts share is a deep suspicion that the divine needs any kind of sacrifice in order to sow redemption into the world. Mm-hmm. In other words, God God's always been a forgiving God. It's not as if, like, oh, first of all, for those who care about the Bible, again, in the Old Testament, God was forgiving. And it's not as if, When Jesus forgave people, he then, like, can you imagine Jesus forgives someone in the stories, which he does a few times, but then he stops a few seconds later and goes, oh, wait, time out. That thing I just did where I forgave you, you're going to have to wait a few weeks till I'm tortured and murdered for that to be, you know, efficacious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He just says you're forgiven. And so, yeah, so forgiveness has always been a part of, of, I think, what God wanted to do. And so both mimetic theory and open relational theology has, has helped me decode the way I've been conditioned, which is that I thought God needed a sacrifice. Turns out God is love and love might invite you to sacrifice if you consent to do so. But love doesn't need a sacrifice. Mm.
0: It's changes so much of the way that we view God from this massive, big, apathetic figure to someone who is loving and caring like a friend. And I really love how open relational theology does that.
1: Mm -hmm. In light
0: of mimetic theory, I really like the way you described the two different views of the crucifixion in layman's terms you you're talking about how penal substitutionary atonement is basically the scapegoating mechanism over and over again of you know in the old testament you have you know just killing these animals and saying all right it covers our sins we keep doing that until we got jesus like you summarized that in the terms (laughs) same mechanism better goat to clarify i was quoting his book here The line, same mechanism, better goat, is how he paraphrases the traditional view of the crucifixion, which many of you might know as the theological term penal substitutionary atonement, Mm -hmm. that Jesus was just the better goat, just worked better. Um, But then you're like, oh, but this alternative version that you present, the message isn't Jesus was a better goat. The message was the mechanism's a lie. We don't need oh, nice. to be doing the scapegoating. <laughs> the mechanism's a lie. And I was like, I love yeah. that summary. <laughs> it was so great.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Oh, man, it was great for me, too, to come to these realizations over the last few years, because it's so life-giving and freeing. I don't have to live by the weight of this mechanism anymore. There's some, There's some. There are other options. So yeah, what Christianity did, it's unbelievable, man. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we are still, we still go round and around about, you know, God needing bloodshed in order for us to be forgiven. And by the way, for those who are listening, I'm, I'll try not to be, um, I don't want to be disrespectful. I know that people um, have created meaning, you know, out of their lives for some of these things. So for some folks that are listening, it may be really hard. So I don't want to come across too strong, but um, but it's been really life-giving to me. And I I think after living with it for a while, I realized that, yeah, what Christianity did, especially in the West, was it took it took everything. Like Jesus came to free us from the mechanism. And after a couple of centuries, it just fell right back into the same old pattern and slotted Jesus back as as the same old goat. And we, we said, oh, well, he's better because he's sinless and he's perfect. And so he's the real thing. I mean, when you start to think through it, it's just illogical. As if God really, as if we really had to get God's attention and the goat wasn't doing the trick, but this really good human will do the trick. It just doesn't add, it just doesn't make sense. Um, You know, I have three kids. When one of them came to me when they were, you know, younger and had a problem and wound up having to ask for forgiveness, never once did it cross my mind that I would need to go get one of the other kids and beat them you know, or to punish them or to sacrifice them in order to to assuage my, you know, my wrath. Um, again, how much more so with a God who is love? I mean, that that's scriptural too. I think it's, for me, it's the pinnacle of scripture that God is love. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's not, it looking at it the old way, it's the same me- mechanism, but like better goat. But looking at it the new way, no, it, the whole mechanism is, is a lie. We don't need a goat. God, God loves to forgive and we're in relationship with him.
0: Mm-hmm. I would definitely agree that if we take our theology about God and put it in the framework of a parent, the flaws become way more clear mm-hmm. because our instincts kick in a bit better. We're not as stuck in the framework of what our religion has taught us, our instincts tells, oh goodness, no, I wouldn't hurt my child. No, I wouldn't do right. that. Like that if, tells us. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If 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 you knew of a parent that acted the way that we've been saying God acts, you would call child protection services on mm-hmm. Them mm-hmm. in a heartbeat. And once you start to realize that you think, well, wait a minute, what is going on here? That just, you know, doesn't make any sense. So I I totally I totally agree. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. don't need to give God all these excuses.
1: No, <laughs> no, no, no. And having kids myself totally messed me up with respect to love and grace and mercy and relationality. So uh, really thankful for that.
0: Mm-hmm. I love asking the audience for questions, it keeps them involved. And I want mm-hmm. to know what they are curious about so i asked them their questions about the crucifixion and the story of jesus overall and this is what they've said so sarah wants to know did jesus have to die that way to save humanity or was it just the best way to reach people during his lifetime
1: hi sarah hope you're doing well thanks for asking the question um so here's, here's what I think, you know, uh, lots of other people might think different things, so I'm not sure that I have the last word on it. But what I think that I think is that Jesus didn't have to die to save humanity. But, um, or I'll, I'll start by saying it this way, Jesus didn't have to be, you know, murdered in a state-sponsored act of violence the way that he was to save us but because he was, what he does is he reveals the scapegoating mechanism, and so he he frees us from, if we're willing to see it, from the petty ways and in, in the very small ways in which we live, and he opens us up to the re, to the reality. I think to the truth that the victim is not guilty. The victim is is innocent, and so when he identifies with the victim, it gives us a way to live, which is. In, a, in Girardian terms it might be something like victimary truth like we it's the truth of the victim so now ever ever since Jesus decoded this thing we have a whole new way of living and it's not necessarily by the law though the law has a has a point it's not necessarily by the text the Bible itself though there's obviously good things in the text but it's re- it's a relational victimary truth it's the it's the reality that love, sides with the innocent that god is close to the brokenhearted and that wherever wherever victims are made grace is there but it's flowing it's like backwards it's not top down hierarchical and so jesus saves us that way he, like saves us from our scapegoating tendencies and the way that we get caught up in all of that i don't think so i don't i don't know if the story would as would have been Yeah, we would have missed something if it hadn't happened that way. Um, And then, of course, to answer the question even more fully, no, I don't think Jesus had to die at all in order for us to to receive grace and forgiveness and love from God. I think we've always, that's always been the case, that God's always been willing to do that. Now, we haven't always, you know, sometimes, because it's a consensual thing. If you don't want it, you can turn your back on it. Um, so I don't think Jesus had to die in the traditional way, but I kind of think he had to die in the way that he did in order to reveal the scapegoating mechanism. Yeah, mm-hmm. something like that. I probably could say that better, Sarah, but I'm I'm kind of going in that direction right now.
0: <laughs> I thought it was great. I wrote down relational victimary truth and mm-hmm. God is close to the brokenhearted. I mm-hmm. love all of those lines. Like There is so much when there is love in your words and you know you're on the right track.
1: There you go. That'll, that'll preach right there, Haley. Yeah. And there's something too. like, if I, Oh gosh, you know, we could talk about it forever. Cause there's <laughs> so, so many beautiful, beautiful things about Jesus's life and his death, even in the death. But also there's something about him identifying with us on the cross when he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like this, that's this iconic moment where, uh, the son of God, the son of man, as he refers to himself, is identifying with us. And I don't think that's just like, oh, I'm trying to be like humans, so I'm going to say this thing. But it really cries out, out and reveals the the depravity, the brokenness and the void inside all of us. Um, and so that reveals a whole bunch of stuff about what it means to be human. In other words, if you are struggling and you feel broken, uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that God's forsaken you. It just means that that's what it feels like sometimes to be a human.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. So the next question from the audience might've gotten a little bit answered. So we'll see, I'm going to go ahead and read yeah. it aloud just so that yeah. they are represented.
1: Sure.
0: Uh, so let's see. Daniel wants to know, the idea that God sent his son to die a violent death poses a lot of ethical issues, but alternative interpretations can make the crucifixion carry less weight. If God did not need Jesus to die, then what was the point? What is the significance of the crucifixion? And was it necessary for our salvation or not? There's a lot there. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and we kind of have already talked about it, but I would just say, Daniel, I totally agree that it, it does present a lot of ethical problems. If if God needs someone to pay, here's one thing that happens. I guarantee you, we see this all the time. If your God needs to be paid, then then the follow the God followers will always need someone to be paid uh, or to be paid, you know. They will need to get paid off, so to speak. Their their wrath will need to be assuaged. They'll wind up wanting to scapegoat. Well, of course, that's exactly what's happened. I mean, (laughs) we we've just we justify our own actions. We may not even say this. In fact, I think a lot of American Christians scapegoating is so hidden. That's why it's so sinister and effective. We don't even realize it. But I do think, at a deep hidden level, that we can justify us getting rid of certain people, because, well, God did, and certainly in the Old Testament, it it appears that the people thought that that's what God was doing. And there's a way to read Scripture to lead you to think that. I just don't think it's the healthy way to read Scripture. I don't think it's it's life-giving. So yeah, I would agree there's some really serious ethical problems with all of that. You know, his second part, he said something like, but if it's not that, then it makes it less important or something takes the weight?
0: Yes. So I think I'm going to filter out parts of the question that we've already talked about. I think the point is that we don't want the conventional view of the crucifixion, but for people who whose faith really centers on the crucifixion, I think it can feel like alternative interpretations can make the crucifixion story carry less weight. That's the line from the, the question. Yeah. So Maybe maybe what we can do is just what advice do you have then for someone whose faith rests on the crucif- crucifixion story and now their interpretation of it's kind of changing? That can be nerve-wracking. So I'm just yeah. going to open it up to that topic to you.
1: Well, okay. So first, before we get there, I think some of what needs to happen, well, that probably sounds uh, presumptuous. I don't know if it needs to happen. I'll tell you what has happened in my life. There's a lot of these concepts that I've had to redefine, um, and even words that I've had to redefine, you know, words that I grew up with, mercy and love and and grace and um, and sacrifice. So sacrifice is a big one. and in, in fact, in my book, I do that. I, I really had to wrestle with because it's not like you can extract the word sacrifice from scripture. And we all know that there is a good type, like an altruistic kind of sacrifice. So maybe would help Daniel to know that uh, what I did is I wrestled with sacrifice and I I finally decided, okay, I'm not going to take it out, but that there's a difference between uh, those who live by the myth of redemptive sacrifice. In other words, the thing that God needs in order for grace or love or forgiveness to flow. There's a, there's a difference between that and a consensual sacrifice, the kind of sacrifice that I choose to step into. It still keeps this really challenging, weighty concept of sacrifice at play. It's just saying God doesn't need it. Rather, God's inviting you to do it at certain times, but it's still consensual. And so in in my work, I actually... I struggled to come up with the phrase and I kind of went this direction that's an English grammar direction of the difference between reflexive and non-reflexive verbs. And um, non-reflexive verbs are the kind of verbs basically where where the subject is coerced into doing the thing. Reflexive is where the subject essentially uh, consents, chooses to be a part of it.
0: Quick note, a reflexive verb is used when the action is done on the subject of the sentence. So for example, I wash myself, I clothe myself. I am both the subject and the object of the action. I am doing the action, but the action also impacts me, influences me. This would not be the case for the sentence, I wash the car. The car is not part of the decision to do the washing. It is not obviously also not conscious. (laughs) Um, But the point is that there are reflexive verbs in which the action is done upon the subject. And there are non-reflexive verbs in which the action is not done back to the subject. And here, Jonathan Foster is using these ideas to demonstrate consensual sacrifice. I will say it's a really beautiful part of his book, so I highly encourage you to check out the book for a more in-depth analysis on reflexive and non-reflexive verbs and how they relate to sacrifice and consent and the story of Jesus overall, because there is so much to talk about and only so much time in a podcast episode.
1: And so what I want to say is something like, God doesn't need non-reflexive sacrifice, but love will always invite you into reflexive sacrifice. It just uh, invites you to try to figure out what those parameters are, which I really, really appreciate it because if if it doesn't invite you to figure out where the boundaries are and the parameters are, then it will well, I just said the word, it'll obliterate the boundaries. Mm-hmm. and at some point, you will be in a position where God can do whatever God wants to do, which I know this sounds heretical, but I don't think I don't think that that's what God wants. I don't think God needs to force himself like the story of Mary, um, I think one of the most beautiful phrases in the entire Mm-hmm. um is let it be, you know, let it be, as you've said, depending on the translation. Well, if if we don't have that phrase, what do we have? Sorry to be offensive to anyone listening, but what we have is this masculine, omnipotent deity abusing, impregnating without Mary's consent, this um, you know, this young, beautiful hebrew girl who was completely powerless it's a terrible story it's a terrible story without without mary saying that i'm so glad that the gospel Mm -hmm. writer whoever it was was it matthew or luke i don't remember who uh, made sure they add that so let's see i'm rambling Um,
0: (laughs) but it's beautiful though i absolutely agree i mean the words let it be it's not just a good Beatles song (laughs) Mm -mm. it's the most powerful powerful words or one of some of the most powerful words in the bible because it's showing a moment of consent at a critical story in the bible so it's it is beautiful because i've had a lot of people actually ask about the topic of mary before especially come christmas time people are like this is it makes me a little uncomfortable i don't know but those words are a big comfort to a lot of people so i'm glad that you mentioned that for sure
1: yeah, and so she she entered into a reflexive kind of sacrifice. She gave up a lot, but she chose to do it. And that's all mirrored again in the crucifixion. And so to Daniel's question, I, I don't think that that's, um, that's, not. I'm not saying Daniel was saying this, but I don't think that's a weak or anemic way to look at it at all. I actually think that's a really, really challenging, strong way to look at it. So it requires us to wrestle with it a lot
0: mm-hmm, I don't really think about this very often, but it just occurred to me that it's it's actually really important that the story of Jesus also gives Jesus free will. Like I often think about my free will <laughs> and other people's free will, but I don't think about like even Jesus needed the the space and the opportunity to say no in order for his yes to have any meaning. And I yeah. think that's true for all things.
1: Yeah, you should tweet that. He needed his <laughs> he needed a space to say no in order for his yes to have any meaning. That's mm-hmm. totally. And the scripture says, um, at Jesus at one point said, um, "This is my life. I can I lay it down, and I have the power to to take it back up again." I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. and messing that up. I, it,
0: I'll I'll find the Bible verse and comment yep. it later. <laughs> yep, it's a good one. I believe that he is referring to John 10:17 and 18, where Jesus says, "'The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father.'" Mm, beautiful so we have one last question from the audience to go into and you can give a short answer to this because it could be a whole again this is another one where it could be a full episode (laughs) derek asked about retributive versus restorative justice in light of jesus's life and death i am gonna say he originally asked also about penal substitutionary atonement, but I'm going to skip that part because we've already addressed it. Yeah. So anyway, you can go. Yeah. Unless and it, you things- want to talk about it more.
1: <laughs> well, all of these things, you know, you bring up these different topics and they color all this stuff, dovetails and overlaps. So that's really interesting with regard to the difference between retributive and restorative. You know, I have come to believe that here in the West, Um, we've just, our imaginations have just been captured by violence. And so when we think of justice or forgiveness, even when we think about sending someone off to prison or punishment, we don't tend to, because we're so captivated by violence, and we want our justice, you know, we, we just think of it in terms of punishing the other person. But in a relational cosmos, it's never just about the other person because it's never, I'm not really an individual. Uh, A Girardian word is I'm an interdividual. So I'm really not who I am without someone else. And they're not who they are without me times 8 billion people times all the creatures, you know, on the, in the world and in the universe. So it's a very interconnected thing. So we have all inherited this idea that, yeah, you, you, commit a crime and you're going to get punished and sent away. And it's with the Bible, it's not like that. With With love, it's not like that. And with Jesus, it wasn't like that. It's a relational thing. There is, There are consequences, but there are times when all of us are going to have to, you know, we'll reap what we sow. But with love, love is never going to forsake you. Love is constantly in it for the restoration. And it might take a while. It might even take you know, like who knows what's going to happen in multiple millennia. I mean, it, it might take a while, but mm-hmm. but love is patient. That's what the text says. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I I think if that's true, that that it could be true that God is constantly into restoration. So retributive, punitive, again, top down, I'm going to do this thing to you and punish you. Uh, that I think that's a man-made thing. I don't really think that's a thing that God needs. It still keeps consequences in play and, you know, implications and stuff in play. But what it means is that love is always right there trying to bring about restoration. So I don't know if that's what he's getting at, but that's what comes to my mind when he asks.
0: Oh, I thought that was a great answer. I definitely do. Well, as we come to a close, what encouragement or advice do you have for our listeners who are deconstructing their faith right now?
1: Wow. There are so many of us that are in the middle of this deconstruction, reconstruction. By the way, I also wrote a book called The Reconstructionist. Ah! And it's where I, it's where I tried, it's a little bit autobi. Well, truth, honestly, everything is autobiographical, <laughs> but this one even more so where I try to give you know, some insight into kind of what happened with me. And for me, what I realized, I'll just do a quick, quick summary. What I realized was that once I started running all the questions that I had about everything, hell, judgment, retributive punishment, restorative, you know, punishment, the crucifixion, all these, you know, determinism, free will, all these things we've been kind of touching upon. I realized that, there were three things that I kept, three like components of this filter that kept helping me get to what I call a healthier, what I think is a healthier theology. And that is that mercy is always greater than sacrifice and that people are always greater than the text and that love is always greater than fear. And it, oh. didn't, it didn't matter what question I was having or what hundreds of questions people in my church were having because I was doing this in real time as a pastor with a couple hundred people. It was super hard. um, And probably if I had to do it over, I might do it differently, but all this stuff was coming at us. And once I kind of got that three point grid, I'm like, Oh, that particular question, it applies here. Mercy. So I'm about mercy, love and the people. And I think that's what Jesus was about too. And I think it's a really challenging way to live, but a really, really beautiful way to live. So for people asking about deconstruction, first of all, I want to say, man, there are just, there are so many people doing it. And there are very real reasons that we are all doing it. This could go on for a long time. Um, You know, one real reason is because the, the essence of deconstruction is built upon a thing called metonymy, which is that we create meaning from language and language changes. That is just a reality. I mean, there's, There's no way around that. So if you're deconstructing, you're just doing what we all do. You're trying to come up with new (laughs) meanings for words and words change and context change. And it drives me crazy when I hear, I just actually read something this morning on a Substack publication from a guy who I actually really, I like most of his writing. And um, he's been around a while. He's very well known. And he started kind of casting, throwing shade on people who were, deconstructing, I'm like, dude, we have to do that because language changes and words change. So it's really important. So I want to tell people, you're doing really good human work by entering into this. You're not going to get a lot of encouragement from the establishment, the institutionalized thinking people, you know, they're going to tell you over and over and we hear it all the time. Again, I was reading it this morning, like that you're bad for doing it. And I just don't think so at all. I think we desperately need it. Um, so I want to like give you a hug and give you a high five and say it's really hard work, but keep doing it and give yourself space and grace and and be patient cause love is patient and that God is with you, and God's not going to get mad at you for you asking some questions and trying to come up with a healthier way of uh, processing life which is so incredibly difficult for for lots of us life is it's challenging yeah i could talk about that all night i don't know if that's helpful or not but
0: oh i i think it's all helpful i'll definitely check out your book the reconstructionist it's so fun that's right that's right and one thing i was going to add is that for anyone who is deconstructing your faith and you having some pushback from your religious community if people are calling you a heretic, as I have been called a few times, you know, they're just perpetuating the scapegoating mechanism, you know. Yes, they
1: are. That's right.
0: <laughs> that's they, it.
1: <laughs> well, that's exactly what happens. When you start to reveal the scapegoating mechanism, sooner or later, you will become the scapegoat. <laughs> and so uh, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, you're on the right track when it's a hard track, though, to be on when you when you become their victim. So
0: mm-hmm. And if you want to learn more about the scapegoating mechanism and how it relates to theology and consent and open relational theology and all of those beautiful things we've been talking about today, be sure to check out his book, Theology of Consent, Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or would like to dialogue with me, you may join me in my community on Instagram at Haley the Scientist. That's Haley spelled H-A-L-E-Y. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support me, the best way is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you prefer. It makes a big difference and really helps me promote the podcast. Also, I'd like to note that my platform is purposefully not monetized, meaning I am not sponsored, I'm not making money off of this, and I'm not selling you anything. My work is entirely inspired by my own interest, research, and commitment to this community. Since podcast episodes do take a lot of time and work, though, I tend to publish about an episode a month, so to stay up to date with my platform, Instagram is the best option. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening, and have a divinely modern day.